since the, since the MC should not announce herself, I'm loaning you my head. I usually don't know what the heck it is that I'm doing. I always tell everybody, ask Maria. Uh, Maria, Maria is our director of operations with the Kosciuszko chair. She also is setting up the skeleton of um, our Intermarium Studies Center. So I would like you to uh, welcome her warmly and she will regale us with a sordid tale of something that's secret. Excuse me, excuse me, may I ask for your attention? Gentlemen, if you want to talk, please leave, because it disturbs me. Thank you very much. I'm very happy that I am talking after Ursula and after Tibor, because my presentation is precisely about the same problem, although we have not discussed nor coordinated uh, our points of view, which shows that uh, some of us come to similar conclusions completely individually, which I think is a good sign. What I am going to talk about is uh, the freedom of speech in Poland. However, I am not going to discuss the cases from press or the cases from the internet where uh, people may or may not think that there is free press in Poland. I want to focus on certain regularities and paradigms which can be seen as we saw through the previous two presentations in um, post-Soviet countries. So the basic question is, are Poles free to disagree? Truth versus manipulation in the Polish media. And to be able to discuss that, we have to go back to the genesis of the freedom of speech in the Western civilization. And the notion comes from the English parliamentarism where the Bill of Rights in 1689 uh, introduced the notion of free speech in the parliament. Namely, the Parliament of England decided that the um, MPs should have the right to express their opinion and not be persecuted for it when in Parliament. And since that moment, um, this notion was inspiring to the um, philosophers of enlightenment and uh, started to float in the, in, in the in intellectual arena, so to say. And as a result, it um, got to both America and France. And in France, the person who was focusing on this matter was James Madison, who in Virginia Declaration of Rights in 1776 wrote already about the freedom of the press. So he recognized that there is not only the freedom of speech, uh, the individual right to, to talk, but also the freedom of propagating of our views. And then um, he, when working on the um, uh, Bill of Rights, 
um, of the American Constitution when working on the Second Amendment. Um, he was proposing various options to, to the body that was deciding about it. And finally, Congress accepted it in a, in a very short form, which I think is very characteristic of the American attitude that is to have the business done and go forward. So the uh, Second Amendment, uh, with reference to the freedom of speech, says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, which is, in essence, what freedom of speech is well, as we understand it nowadays. In France, um, this was a bit different uh, situation because uh, Marquise de Lafayette, who was a friend of Jefferson, uh, was inspired by the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Uh, and he came up with the document of the Declaration of the Rights of Men and, and the Citizen. And here there is a very interesting point. In contrary to the Declaration of Rights, uh, of freedom of speech in the in the Second Amendment, the French Declaration contains a self-limiting clause, uh, which shows that the French people understand uh, freedom of speech a bit differently. Namely, uh, the free communication of ideas and of opinions is one of the most precious rights of man. Any citizen may therefore speak, write, and publish freely, except what is tantamount to the abuse of this liberty in the cases determined by law. So in essence, the French people say, yes, there is the freedom of speech, but there is also the right that regulates it and can limit it. But they don't specify what right. Which shows that uh, in, the f in the French line of thinking, this uh, freedom of speech seems to be a little bit relative in, in its very essence. Whereas in the American understanding, uh, we are not thinking about how to limit it. We are just saying everybody can say and write whatever they feel uh, they believe in. In Poland, there is an additional element related to the freedom of speech, which is uh, the particularly long democratic experience. Poland, uh, by virtue of its uh, Slavic roots, has produced a very individual uh, political system which was uh, unique in Europe in the times of the Middle Ages. And uh, we called it noble democracy, and I will discuss it um, in a few moments. But uh, this ad identity uh, that Poles inherited from the country that was used to self-government for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, is enriching our understanding of freedom of speech. So Slavic roots and Christian ideas. For, uh, for the benefit of our audience, I can say that the uh, Slavic nations <coughs> oh no. I am so sorry. Uh, we're running out of, uh, of power, so to say. <laughs> oh, here it is. Power Rangers to the right. I, I didn't see it. <laughs> Thank you. So, to, to come back to the Slavs, the Slavs were the people who understood the word in, in, um, in Slavic languages, Słowo is the word. So from the very beginning, the Slavs identified themselves as people who talk. So uh, as a result, their way of deciding about things was a communal way. The Slavs would assemble at a vecha, and then their leaders and elders would uh, inform the assembly about the important decisions that were to be taken. And as a result, they would um, decide to together. And this form of government was evolving in the area of uh, what we know as today's Poland 
from local assemblies to deitanies, which in turn created uh, the parliament. So there was another body, uh, its name was uh, Ducal Council, that means the local duke, they had some, uh, some body of people who were advising him what to do. So this body evolved into the Royal Council and the higher chamber of our parliament. So from the very beginning, we had the grassroots activities that, that pushed out our parliament to the existence. It, it was not um, that there was a chosen circle of people around the monarch that were needed to wield government and they finally ended up as a parliament. It, it went from, top, uh, from, from bottom to top, which is very interesting. What also needs to be understood about the Polish royals, they were, uh, the caste of Polish royals was different from other aristocracies in Europe. Uh, the aristocracies in Europe usually uh, um, consisted of approximately 1% of population, sometimes less. Whereas in Poland, uh, nobles consisted of 10%. So 10% of people were um, entitled to partake in government, to, uh, to take decisions, uh, to have influence on monetary policy through decisions about taxes and on military um, po policy through military decisions because they decided about it together. Uh, they could choose their monarchs from, si <coughs> from uh, 16th century. And uh, there was also a principle of uniformity that said that they, had to, uh, that they have to decide together. So if the decision was not decided together, it couldn't be taken. There was a special instrument which was called liberum veto, which means that one noble who was at the assembly and who was not um, agreeing with the decision could veto the whole parliament and they had to split and, and then maybe g get back together in some time and try to decide again. This instrument was uh, abused with time, but at the very beginning it was very efficient and people were not abusing it. They respected the right of everyone to, um, to partake in decisions. Uh, what is also very interesting is that Poland had elective kings, so basically they were running votes for the king just as we vote our presidents in. And our first elective king was, in, uh, was elected in um, 15, was elected in 1573, which means that this was long before America was created. All right. Uh, then, unfortunately, our constitution, uh, constitutional system deteriorated because we had um, a very bad period of wars, and after that period, we had neighbors who were growing strong. And since all the surrounding countries were absolutist monarchies, they didn't really like Polish constitutional monarchy, because for for the very simple reason, due to the liberties that uh, the Polish uh, nobility had. And due to the relatively lenient uh, system of management, which was applied to everyone in Poland, people were simply running away from other countries to live in Poland, especially from Russia, which created a lot of tension because nobody wants to lose their subjects who are paying taxes. So over the 18th century, the crisis was rising and the Poles felt that something was wrong. 
there were attempts at reform and uh, the last fruit of those attempts inspired by different currents of the Enlightenment is the constitution of the 3rd May, which is the first constitution in Europe and the second constitution in the whole world. It was, um, uh, it was passed in 1791, and this was an attempt at peaceful revolution. We have been speaking about revolutions here before, so Poles had this idea that do they don't really want to change their system violently, they wanted to continue with the constitutional monarchy, but give more and more liberties to all the people in order to finally uh, make them all equal. At least this is, uh, this is what they were hoping for. Unfortunately, their um, attempts at reform were thwarted and Poland was partitioned. However, the constitution remained the point of reference uh, for uh, all the generations to come. Uh, and here I'm going to uh, jump 100, uh, 100 or 150 years forward. Uh, Poland finally regained independence uh, in the 20th century. For a brief period between the First World War and the Second World War, we could enjoy our liberties and try to restore the country that uh, after partitions was developed to different levels depending on the region. And we were quite successful at it. However, then the war came uh, and with the war, um, came a completely different civilization and um, this is what uh, this picture is depicting. For those of you who have no Polish roots, I would like to explain that the soldier whom we can see here, it, he is dressed in a traditional Polish outfit. His military outfit is from the 1920s, but the wings that you see, it's the remnant of the very old tradition of Husaria, uh, which were our uh, heavy riders that were comparable to present-day infantry. When the Polish uh, military was attacking, those units would attack on horses. The wings were making additional noise, so the, enemy, the enemy's horses uh, didn't know what was going on, and they were usually panicking. Uh, so we have this soldier, and above him we have a contraption from a very different civilization, and those who can um, who look at it will see the red star. To me, this picture is very symbolic, and it describes precisely what happened in Poland uh, when the. Germans and the Soviets attacked Poland in 1939. A completely different civilization with a completely different paradigm came and they decided to violently uproot Polish civilization. So what you, what you have to understand for, um, with regards to Poland, the Second World War was not, was not a confrontation between the Poles and the Krauts. It was not like for Americans that they came to Europe and then they came back home. For us, there was uh, an alien power, completely alien, as you can see, w which is very well presented by this picture, who came and decided to change the world that we were living in and uproot the whole culture of Poland. So this is precisely what was happening. Between 1944 and 1956, there was a period of violent, um, of violent Sovietization of Poland. 
And between 1944 and 1947, it was taking place with the semblance of legality. It was all for the benefit of the Western powers. So even though uh, people were already being tortured and arrested, uh, we had um, elections which were rigged, we had a referendum which was rigged too, and a series of machinations in the Polish parliament uh, which led to the exclusion of the legal opposition from the parliament. And ever since 1948, we have a fully-fledged counter-insurgency uh, counter war aimed at complete Sovietization. And this was really a totalitarian terror with assassination, routine torture of prisoners, overloaded jail. The Soviets in Poland even used concentration camps for the new purpose to put their Polish soldiers of the home army and those of the soldiers who returned to Poland after fighting in the Second World War elsewhere. And um, they were just uh, intimidated or they were eliminated. Uh, the Soviets were also, also taking a pass at um, the countryside in Poland and at the church. And one of, the, one of the instruments of that was censorship. Here you can see Jakub Berman. This was the second most important person in, uh, in the first years of communism in Poland. He was the, uh, responsible for the Ministry of Social Security. And at a meeting with censors in 1945, he said, we do not accept the idea of abstract freedom which goes back to all what Tibor was talking about, that if, if freedom is not absolute, then that, that is not freedom. And here he says that basically people who agree with us can have freedom of speech, but all the others who hit or try to crush the base are not allowed this freedom. So uh, censorship had semi-legal grounds. There was a number of uh, decrees and regulation that were introducing a censorship in Poland. But in essence, the censorship was to control and manipulate the information flow. And the institution who was taking care of it uh, was the Communist Party. And the extent of censorship uh, was such that every anything that was published had to be accepted by a censor before. So can you imagine this in America, where you have 300 million people, everybody reads a newspaper every day, and imagine that there is an organization that is controlling what is published every day. So in the communist media, the censorship served to create um, artificial reality, so to say. Um, the Despite of being the most diverse media system among the communist uh, among the communist countries, it was fully controlled by uh, by the Communist Party, and um, it gave the semblance of um, public discussion. But there was there were frames that were checked on by the censors uh, beyond which you couldn't really uh, move. What is more, this was not public knowledge. The activities and the extent of intervention of the censors uh, was kept secret by the state. And here is the book that was a revo revolution. Uh, we had um, one censor who finally couldn't do it anymore. 
For years, he was copying documents. He um, copied 700 of uh, um, secret documents, and he ran away to the West. What prompted his um, his runaway was the fact that he was expected to uh, censor information about the massacre of 22,000 POWs murdered by the Soviets in 1940, because his grandfather happened to be one of them, he just decided that he couldn't participate in this system anymore, <laughs> anymore. So this book shocked not only the West, but also Poland, because it was reprinted in the so-called second circulation, which was an alternative oppositionist uh, publishing activity. Uh, and many accounts of people and writer, writers who lived at that time uh, prove that the, the extent of intervention was shocking the people, that they didn't really know that practically everything, Polish internal politics, popular perception of the Communist Party, including the choice of pictures of party leaders that can be published in newspapers, relations with other countries, which is mostly Soviet Union, social and economic situation of Poland, Catholic Church and history, all of that was censored and sometimes even not mentioned because silence was a special variety of censorship in Poland. If, if a topic was sen sensitive, the best way to get rid of the topic was not to talk about it. All right. And um, briefly, before I proceed to the modern times, uh, I, I wanted to mention that in Poland in the 1970s and 1980s, there was something like second circulation. Polish opposition was able to get hold of printing presses that were mostly provided by people of goodwill, a considerable number of them in America. The printing presses were smuggled in Poland and made it possible for the opposition to start printing uh, their own materials. So this gave access uh, to alternative sources of, of information, to the sources of information which were not censored, and this gave people venue for alternative discussion. And there were all types of texts, from serious political texts and economic analysis through poetry, religious texts, to uh, political manifestos. There was an arena of silent exchange uh, of um, information which was very well developed. It was the best developed in the whole Soviet bloc in uh, altogether more than 6,500 uh, 6, books were published and 5,500 periodicals. And it allowed people to have something else than what they were being fed by the television, by the radio, and by the press. And here, um, I see many Polish faces, but for those who do not come from Poland, in 1989 in Poland we had peaceful transition from communism to democracy. It was negotiated by some members of our opposition and the Communist Party. And uh, as I was talking earlier today uh, to Ambassador Hughes, who was here, uh, he said that to many people in America it was a huge surprise that this transition was peaceful. And there are reasons for, the, for why the transition was peaceful. Because 
the transition was not only political, not only from communism to democracy, but it was also economic at the same time. And these economic changes were very uh, rushed and very disorganized. And uh, as a result, there was privatization. Um, so let's imagine a communist country, communist with a country which is so poor that it ra rations the food. When I was a kid, my mom, before she could buy uh, five ounces of meat, she had to show a stamp that she actually has the right to buy it. So this is the level of poverty we are talking about, food shortages in shops. And then there comes the transition and we are privatizing. We are privatizing all the state property. But how to appraise the state property if there is no accounting? Because the accounting is the functions in the Western style economy where actually there is demand and, uh, and price. But in the communist economy, prices were arbitrary. They were copied from the West or decided by the, by the Communist Party. So we had all that massive wealth of, uh, of the nation, the enterprises, the industries, the newspapers, the television, all of that was privatized at a completely hap haphazard manner. And because original Poles at that point were dirt poor, the only people who had capital were either foreign investors or people who were somehow connected to the Communist Party. So the people who used to rule Poland before the transition. And as a result, we had middlemen acting as a go-between between the foreign capital and, um, and the people who uh, had some access. And as a result, the privatization of attractive sectors of Polish economy happened in next to no time. By mid-1990s, uh, Polish sector of the media was practically all privatized. So the result of all those uh, activities was no transparency, creation of monopolies, glass roof for a major part of Polish uh, um, society, which is evidenced by massive, of Pol um, massive emigration of Poles after we were, uh, uh, after we were uh, allowed to work in the countries of the European Union. Because the moment Poland joined the European Union, it's unemployment dropped by 12% because we exported that 12% to the countries that were not closing the careers for hardworking people. So this, um, I'm calling this poisoned well because even though there is a change and we have democracy and we can vote and people can make money, uh, there is this connection to the previous times where people were privileged. And the fact that privileged people got privileged again breeds resentment. And it leads to a lot of tension, not only in, the, in, in Poland, but also, for instance, in Romania. And I bet that the mechanism is the same. So here, just shortly about the freedom of speech, um, the main office for control of press and publication, which is censorship, was dissolved in April 99, which is the irony of fate, because it dissolved after the system fell and after the Workers' Party dissolved. So the, the, 
instrument that was there to prolong the power of the communist state fell fell after the communists fell the communism itself fell which i th i think it's it's brilliant irony and as we know the uh, transformation was chaotic and the capital which came to poland um in that period was mostly capital from abroad and here there is a brief situation as it looks nowadays and again, think about American realities. What we see here is the four segments of the media market, press, internet, radio, and television. And if we look at the press alone, 76% uh, of Polish newspapers are in the hands of foreign capital. It is as if someone who's not from America owned every seven per 10 newspapers that there are. So, it, it is a situation which is negative for Poles, first of all, because this is an important sector of the economy and most of the proceeds from that sector go abroad. And of course we may say that the capital has no nation, but the fact where your money is staying, if it is staying in your country or if it goes abroad, does matter, especially in case of the post-Soviet countries that are poor that we have to catch up to the general European level and those countries are much poorer. So the more foreign capital there is, the worse for them. And it has nothing to do with nationalism. It has simply something to do with how wealthy you are and what your life aspirations are. And this is again proved by the emigration of Poles abroad. They want to have life like everybody else because they deserve it, just like everybody else. Uh, here we have uh, the domination of German capital. It's, it's logical because the, uh, the Germans are our neighbors and they are very wealthy, so it's completely natural that, it's happens, uh, that it happens this way. And then there is also the curious case of Polish television. Polish television is the, mm, the major players on the television market are still in the Polish hands. Uh, the one that you see in the middle, TVN, it was sold to Americans only uh, in 2015. But there is another institution which is impinging on the uh, freedom of speech of television in Poland, and this is the National Broadcasting Council. In theory, this is the organ which is supposed to be responsible for freedom of speech and to control it in Poland, but in practice, Two members of this body are uh, elected by our lower chamber of parliament, two are nominated by the president, and one is nominated uh, by the higher chamber of the parliament. Which means that in essence this is a, the political body. And because they decide how money from the, uh, how the taxpayer's money that is paid uh, as a tax for television and radio is divided, the, polit the political powers that put them up to decide have influence on what is being said in the media. And here we have the return of the new. Due to the, uh, due to the continuity with the previous system, be it in a form of capital, or be it in the form of ownership, because some of the media that were funded in Poland uh, after 1989 were funded by communists uh, and due to the
continuity of certain institutions because uh, the National Broadcasting Council has very broad scope of responsibilities. Uh, there is continuity between Poland as a, uh, between the communist Poland and the new Poland. And because there is a continuity uh, in many sectors, and I am talking about the media sector, it has similar results to the ones that we have under communism. And as a result, in the Polish media sector, we have widespread censorship. Because the modus operandi of censorship in the communist times was the censor would have a warm personal relationship with the journalist so that the cooperation goes smooth. And with time, the journalist would learn what sort of things are unpopular to say and he would avoid saying them. Because if he would have written them, the process of censoring of his work would, would take more, more time. So it was beneficial both for the journalist and for, uh, for the writer to, to shorten this process. And because, the, because of the continuity of cadres, this um, habit of self-censorship persevered. So now we have democratic country and television started by new people, but they think in the old way. So they are guessing the wishes of their editors, of their owners, of the politicians who rule in the country. And this is bad for the press. This is bad for freedom of speech because irrespective of whether it is a right-wing party in power or left-wing party in power, the persuasion that a journalist should auto-censor himself is the end of free speech. Because you can never point it, point it out, because there is no proof, but there is censorship. And uh, just briefly a comment about how young people react to it. They reject, to a certain extent, this uniformity of the media, because what is very characteristic of the media in Poland is that most of them speak with one voice. So the, the young people who already were born after 1989 and were not corrupted by the previous system, they can sense that something is wrong. They cannot really explain, but they would much rather uh, read the internet than a newspaper. And um, newspaper uh, and the internet is a very interesting venue that is full of satire. So this tendency of Polish people to follow the media, to go with the mainstream, to not question the official narrative, which is all based in their communist past, is summed up on the internet as lemmings. And a lemming is a small animal that has periodic travels for the sake of um, multiplying. And in those travels, the lemmings massively die because they, they go in one group. And because they have to swim, and cannot um, evaluate how far it is to the next island, most of them drown. And this is how the people who are following the mainstream media and have no habit of questioning the reality are referred to popularly on the internet, the lemmings. And the young educated from major centers, you can see a picture here. This is a picture from a satire portal that assumes this viewpoint of a super European youth who is um, supporting... 
Well, you, you caught me there. I haven't checked it. <laughs> but uh, in, in essence, they assume the, um, the point of view of, uh, of the super pro-European youth to ridicule it. And here I just wanted to show a more serious thing that shows the, uh, the mental continuity, the continuity of paradigm, which I think is the essence of the problems in Poland. It's not about the freedom of speech that somebody is trying to uh, forcibly mold us now. No, it's the old habit that molds us. And here you can see the poster from 1945. The title of it is the giant and the dribbling dwarf of, um, of reaction. And reaction is the soldier of the opposition. This was published when all those people were rounded up by communists and sent to concentration camps. This is how they were portrayed in the Polish propaganda posters. And yeah, yeah, communist posters, of course. So off goes 70 years. And we have a Newsweek uh, cover which clearly alludes to this. And the title of the cover is The Bigs Big and the Lilliputs. So it's not only the idea of, of the giant and the dwarf, but also it, it really says Bigs Big and Lilliputs. And what is shocking in it is not that it is similar because, of course, the poster on the left side was extremely popular and everybody knows it. But the fact that somebody thinks that an allusion to the system which was murdering Polish people massively to introduce communist rule in Poland is a legitimate way of constructing narratives for uh, free press. This is what's shocking the continuity of, of this paradigm without really realizing what it means. So I already discussed internet, unfortunately we don't have as much time, uh, but th the point of internet is that it is less controlled, it is less Byzantine, it allows people to publish without being supported by ma major newspapers, and it also allows to search for truth. And uh, this is evidenced by the fact that certain bloggers in Poland are used as legitimate source of, of information even by professional journalists. And here, can anybody recognize this statue? Anyone? The <laughs> free. Yes, this is a freedom statue on the Capitol uh, building. So the, the problem of the freedom of speech is the f in fact the problem of freedom in general. The, I sincerely believe that people who live in Eastern Europe uh, have the right to be free, just as Americans have the right to be free. But to be free, they have to reconcile their past and reconcile their past, it doesn't mean to um, organize a witch hunt on the, on the people who used to belong to the former, um, to the former communist system, which uh, Orshi was talking about. 
to reconcile the past is to say openly that the paradigm that we were forced to accept were put on us by force. And now that we are free, we don't have to choose it. Because all the tensions that you can see in the Polish society stem from the fact that apart follows the anti-Soviet paradigm because they r reject the communist Poland. A part of them like the paradigm and want to be post-Soviet because this is what they consider their Poland for various reasons. And there is a group which is completely passive. They haven't chosen anything, but they don't belong neither here nor there. So to have a country which is consistent, to be able to create a country which, which can have a future, we have to emancipate ourselves. And this can be done if we look at, for instance, freedom of speech and expect different practices from our journalists. We have to say auto-censorship is wrong, this is not free speech. Uh, we have to say what was wrong in our past and what was good, and we cannot pretend that everything was of, of equal value because murdering people is, is wrong. <laughs> it's simply wrong. I would say that we have to kill the Homo Sovieticus, and Homo Sovieticus is, is the man who, who was a citizen of the USSR, who was conditioned to have no individuality, no personality, to be uh, malleable, and to be uh, amoral. So, at the, I, at the beginning, I briefly presented our long democratic tradition, and I believe that the Polish tradition has a lot to offer to people who want to delve into their own uh, heritage, and that our long and uh, long and successful practice of um, of uh, republican values can give us a lot when we when we look for the new paradigm. But first and foremost, we have to say that. We have to choose a different paradigm. We cannot continue being half anti, half pro-Soviet and in the middle really neutral. And to finish is another beautiful picture by my, uh, by my favorite painter. And this is um, the rendition of the um, Polish Bolshevik War. Polish uh, yeah, and, and the Polish transformer, which means our paradigm shall conquer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> One question. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, in the Western tradition, is a right to free speech accrued initially to the royal fool. And I covet that job and I try to live true to it all the time, but this is really uh, important. The great king of Persia didn't have a fool. I mean, he had people to amuse him. But you were only allowed to say, oh, you're so wonderful, nothing else. Same the emperor of China. In the West, somehow, there developed space, even for jokes. Even the French have it, they call it l'humeur. You know. Even they have a sense of humor. Um, and as far as um, the, the, the Commonwealth and medieval Poland, in addition to the nobility, uh, there were burghers. They voted for their own government. 
there were city councils. They couldn't operate on the national level, but there was local autonomy. There were also uh, uh, village councils to adjudicate various problems. If problems became too difficult, they'd go and see the priest or the lord. But village councils were too, by co-optation and by consensus. You couldn't be a tyrant if you were a part of the village council because the village would ostracize you. So it had to be somehow in congruence. That is, by the way, uh, the case with Switzerland or Spain or France or Wales that I looked at least in medieval <coughs> studies. I'm sure Germany too. Uh, okay. As far as the interwar war, interwar period, I wouldn't idealize it in Poland. After Piłsudski and his socialists seized power in a coup d'état in 1926, they instituted uh, censorship. It was very mild. That is, if you published an article they didn't like, they confiscate the whole uh, print. So you, as a, as as a journalist, would have to go to your publisher and say, "Dude, no money for this." addition because I was <coughs> offensive and I'll give you an example my grandmother's eldest brother went to jail he was so-called he was the deputy editor-in-chief the responsible editor that, that was the function redactor odpowiedzialny so anytime in Dziennik Wileński the, da, the daily of Vilno there was something that the Piłsudskiite provincial governor didn't like my uh, uh, my grandfather's uh, my, my grandmother's uh, eldest brother would go to jail. He was a kid. He was a sophomore or something at school. One time he spent a year in jail because someone else wrote uh, something bad about the dictator and wouldn't take it back. Uh, occasionally that happened. Confiscations have mostly through confiscations. Jail was unusual. So let's not idealized the interwar period especially not the government i kind of glided over it because there was no time no, <laughs> no but i just uh, in all fairness let's uh, remember about that confiscations however during world war ii in the underground which produced twenty thousand titles uh, regional and central ladies and gentlemen no censorship with the exception that everybody of course signed or not signed his pseudonym. So the underground witness the greatest proliferation, sometimes even on the stupid side. Here is a liberal newspaper called Bulletin Informazione, which could come up uh, could come out in the underground against the Nazis in two hundred thousand copies a week. They bragged one time about a hit against a freeing of prisoners in Brzezh. And the Germans said, oh, so it wasn't Soviet partisans, and they arrested 120 Poles and shot them. So sometimes, yes, you had idiots running newspapers, but generally speaking, uh, no censorship and no silliness. Censorship uh, started when the Red Army entered Poland, and newspapers resurfaced. All of them had to be blessed by the NKVD to operate, all of them, including the Catholic ones. Uh, so, there was no censorship in the underground, by the way, in the 1980s. I remember you didn't like what mainstream underground newspapers had to say, because in the 70s there were too few to do this, but you didn't like what the mainstream underground newspapers had to say, then you started your own. 
tiny published whatever. Uh, that said, we have rule books. Associate, Associated Press has a rule book. When journalists are in doubt, they have to consult it. And rule books in America are becoming increasingly politically correct. They stifle freedom. Uh, I saw the indication of it already uh, uh, back in the 1990s. Istvan Derk was writing a book on the Habsburg officer corps and he sent his copy to the editor and this, they censored uh, such silly things as he wrote, oh there were regimental dwarfs, that is a regiment in the Habsburg army would keep handicapped people, dwarfs, as I don't know, to feed them, it was supposed to be a part of the regimental folklore. However, the censor at the publishers, and I forgot it was Harvard or Oxford University Press, and the book upstairs changed it to little people. That was the, that was the foretaste of political correctness that now afflicts everything in America, and it's getting worse. And in Europe, it's absolutely paralyzing. So. Don't be hard on the post-communist press in Poland because it has its counterparts. I think it's a global trend. It's just it hurts more in post-communist uh, countries because they have just emerged from under totalitarianism and they should cherish freedom, whereas we inflict that upon ourselves, all this political correctness, because we feel like it. When we stop feeling like it, there will be the reversal. You can read the presidential tweets if, if you think I'm kidding. <laughs> Oops. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. We don't need the power anymore. Katie, do we have some time for questions or are we finishing? Oh, before you. The last announcement. Everybody here is a volunteer. So unless you've sent us a check recently, we'll have to say goodbye after the last questions for Maria because everybody else wants to go home. She's a fanatic, I'm a fanatic. Everybody else is just kind, loving, pleasant, and they tolerate me here. But they need to go home to a baby. I really would like to thank Mrs. Bridges and the crew for organizing this. This is all volunteer effort. Three questions then. <laughs> yes, Michael. So what is that administrative thing that would like to do uh, the same guy, the president guy in the Senate actually do? How do they enforce the, the National Broadcasting Council? It, this is a body which is um, which is a controlling body by virtue of our constitution. So they have a number of prerogatives, but the most important one is giving concessions for broadcasting, then giving the frequencies for broadcasting when you, once you already have a concession, and distribution of money from the taxpayers' money that go for television, and then also um, the decisions about the um, programs of the Polish television and the Polish radio. This is the 31% of the market is the uh, state-owned television, but they also give concessions to commercial televisions. 
So it is an important, it was an important decision forever, uh, for instance, who is going to get the first uh, concession for commercial television in Poland. And out of the five or six companies that were participating in the tender, the company with the smallest experience and the smallest amount of capital was chosen because the person who was the director had connections. <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> yes? You had a comment there about a, a letter from the uh, president of uh, Axel Springer. Mm -hmm. What was that? What were you doing? Well, uh, recently there were elections in the European Parliament and a Polish par politicians politician was running for a second term. And the Polish government was very critical of this candidacy and they put forward a different candidate. They probably might have devoted more time to lobbying, so they did it kind of last moment and it was not very um, well played, so to say. But nevertheless, they said that they don't share the opinion of all the other people in the European Union. And the director of the newspaper that has, I believe, 20 or 15% of the share of the uh, media, of the press market, I, I cannot tell you from my head the number, uh, sent a letter to all the newspapers in Poland that they owned, the CEO of the company, giving them talking points about criticizing Polish government. It was not explicitly said, you have to write this, this, this and this, but the line of narration was clear from the letter. And this letter was leaked and the Polish Association of Journalists uh, um, placed um, a complaint. But the point is that irrespective of where the capital comes from, this might become a source of political influence if you have this habit among journalists to, s to basically fo follow the party line, so to say. Are there any more questions? One last question. Yes, no? <laughs> oh. All right, so I think we can call it a day. Thank you for coming. Thank you for waiting <laughs> till the last lecture. I really appreciate it.